Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, Analyswift. Do you work in the design and analysis of aerospace structures and materials? If so, Analyswift's innovative engineering software, SwiftComp, may be the solution you're seeking. Used either independently for virtual testing of aerospace composites, or as a plugin to power conventional FEA codes, SwiftComp delivers the accuracy of 3D FEA in seconds instead of hours. A general-purpose multi-scale modeling program, SwiftComp provides an efficient and accurate tool for modeling aerospace structures and materials featuring anisotropy and heterogeneity. Not only does SwiftCom quickly calculate the complete set of effective properties needed for use in macroscopic structural analysis, it also accurately predicts local stresses and strains in the microstructure for predicting strengths. Find out how others in composites are saving time while improving accuracy, designing earlier in the process, and getting to market more quickly. For a free trial, visit analyswift.com. SwiftComp. Right results, right away. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. On this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, I'm speaking to Max Hout, who's the founder of Launcher, a rocket startup based out of Brooklyn, New York. Launcher was founded in early 2017 and is on a 10-year journey to deliver small satellites to orbit. More specifically, Launcher plans to deliver payloads of up to 300 kilograms into low Earth orbit cheaper than anyone else in the growing small launcher market a market specializing on CubeSats that will deliver GPS, internet services, and Earth imaging in the near future. That sounds like an ambitious goal, but Max has a clear vision of how he intends to achieve it. The most difficult part of launching satellites into orbit is building a robust and reliable engine. On top of that, the physics of the rocket equation dictate very stringent constraints on the mass of the rocket and payload. To launch a satellite into low Earth orbit, a typical liquid oxygen kerosene rocket is around 95% propellant. So any fuel savings from a more efficient rocket engine can go towards increasing the payload. Launcher spent the last year working on their proof-of-concept engine, the E1, and are now in the process of spending the next three years developing the 40 times larger E2 engine. Key to Launcher's rocket engine is 3D printing and a staged combustion cycle. 3D printing allows for reduction in parts, faster development times, and easier manufacturing of complex geometries such as integrated cooling channels, which all help to reduce costs. 
In a staged combustion cycle, a favorite of the Soviet engineers in the 1960s, propellant flows through two combustion chambers, a pre-burner and a main combustion chamber. The pressure produced by igniting a small amount of propellant in the pre-burner can be used to power the turbo pumps that force the remaining propellant into the main combustion chamber. The addition of the pre-burner leads to better fuel efficiency but comes at the cost of greater engineering complexity. One of the things that I love about Launcher is that they face this daunting engineering challenge with the utmost humility, documenting many of their failures and successes online for everyone to see. In this way, anyone can get a glimpse of what it means to build a rocket company from scratch. In this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, you will learn how Max got into the space industry, the engineering details behind many aspects of the E1 engine, and Launcher's current schedule for developing the full-size E2 engine. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Max Hout. So I'm here with Max Hout, who is the founder of Launcher, a rocket startup company based out of Brooklyn, New York. Max, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, great, to, great to speak with you, and uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. So as far as I'm aware, you were quite successful in a number of ventures, both in terms of software and hardware engineering, before you started Launcher. So before we start talking about rockets and space, can you tell me a little bit about your background and what you did before starting Launcher? So, uh, you know, my background is an internet uh, entrepreneur, actually, uh, as, uh, as I mentioned, I lived actually in the UK since uh, in 95 and moved here in the US in New York in 2005. Uh, and I've been involved with a wide range of, uh, you know, internet uh, project companies and products. Most recently, I founded Livestream, uh, which is a SaaS service to enable anyone to uh, stream their event. Um, it was primarily SaaS, meaning software, and grew to more than 10,000 customers, 200 employees, uh, more than 50 million in revenue, and we actually sold it last year to uh, the owners of uh, to Vimeo and their owner called the IEC here in the U.S. last October. Um, in that in that project, I actually got the chance to uh, to build an amazing hardware team where we built uh, probably the world's best uh, live streaming camera called Mevo. You can check it out at Get Mevo, and uh, you know built some hardware shops or at least you know managing and building the team that uh, did it in in you know industrial design, mechanical engineering electrical engineering for consumer electronics, you know, firmware, all that stuff, uh, and producing it, uh, you know, close to 100,000 units in, uh, in China and, and selling it all over the, the world. So um, that was a great introduction uh, into hardware, obviously very different manufacturing challenge and hardware challenge uh, at Launcher, uh, but it was a, a good segue for me. Right. So you, you just mentioned your, your current company, Launcher. So why did you decide to kind of segue and embark on, on this journey? Because, you know, we all know that building rockets is a, you know, a notoriously difficult thing to do. So what was your thought process going into this project? Well, the, the first step, you know, I've been obviously interested in aerospace and space exploration since, you know, I can remember since when, like uh, most people that are in this industry. Um, and, you know, the more concrete real... Uh, um, kind of driver was in 2008 I discovered the SpaceX website and it blew my mind you know in twofold one that the government was letting private entrepreneurs you know now we take it for granted but at that time it was only government uh, the government was willing to uh, you know to to let private entrepreneur literally build rockets which are missile you know I thought that was pretty amazing and the second piece was that an internet guy could actually do that uh, that that kind of blew my mind and you know 2008 is still in the middle of Falcon 1 failing, so it was far from being proven. 
and, and certainly not uh, how we know uh, Elon Musk today and, uh, and the company is built. Um, so that, that kind of the starting point where I was, you know, I must, you know, I, I, after live stream, I need to switch and focus the rest of my career. It's possible. Uh, and obviously, I kept my head down and uh, and uh, and built live stream, which I was obviously also very passionate about uh, video and, and the internet. Um, then the you know the other piece is uh, you know towards uh, last year I started to wind down with live stream. We were selling it, um, and I started to start a new venture. and And at first, I was looking at uh, satellites. You know, I kind of dismissed launch as an opportunity and was looking at CubeSat and satellite and application to start my next startup. And in that process of studying, you know, everything that's going on right now from all the people that are claiming they're building Orbital Launcher to obviously the much more palatable, at the time it wasn't yet uh, successfully, uh, it's successfully reached Orbit, uh, but the efforts of uh, Rocket Lab. Um, looking at all of that, analyzing it, and now, you know, a, a small sat launcher would need to rely on, on this launch access and infrastructure. You know, I concluded there was still a huge opportunity um, in launch. And so that's how Launcher started. Um, kind of brewing the idea towards uh, the end of 2016 and, and really, um, you know, starting and building the team and starting the company in March, um, you know, early, late March 2017. So we're just a little bit over a year uh, into, a, into our journey to build our, our launch vehicle. All right. Amazing. So you just mentioned SpaceX. And of course, SpaceX is known for its, you know, long term goal of uh, establishing a colony of Mars. So I guess the, the the mission of SpaceX SpaceX is very much to build, you know, kind of a new Saturn V rocket that can go into deep space. But I guess Launch's mission is more towards um, the the satellite market, and as you just mentioned, kind of like Rocket Lab in New Zealand, to provide a good capability to launch satellites into space. Now, at the same time, in the UK, we recently had some big news that Orbex intends to launch satellites from Scotland. So it seems like we're hearing about all these new kind of launch capabilities or people intending to build launch capabilities around the world. So how do you see the market developing and how will you differentiate yourself? Do you think there's, a, you know, the satellite market is big enough to support that many players? Yeah, I mean, just to take a step back on what we are building. So we are building a, a small uh, satellite launch vehicle or rocket that can deliver 300 kilogram of payload to 200 kilometer orbit. And our key differentiator, you know, when I was going through that, uh, that exercise was everyone in the, you know, that you can see all the people and all the companies making these efforts are all focusing on first to market. They all make the assumption that, you know, I need to be first because the first one will take the whole market. To us, that's a very short-term view of the market and how it can grow, uh, and we can talk about that later. Um, so our key differentiator is to say, no, actually, it's about building the best rocket we can for small launcher, taking a bit longer. If the market is there, it will still be there. And you know, in terms of uh, the best rocket, you're really talking about uh, performance. Um, just to give you an idea, so everybody out there, you know, everything we've seen, that everyone is taking shortcuts on propulsion. Everyone is optimizing for time, not for performance. Um, but I think it's really important to let you know some of the numbers sink in. You know, on our, um, you know, I call it paper rocket because we haven't built it yet, and we focused exclusively on propulsion. Um, we, you know, we have a 33-ton uh, vehicle. Out of the 33 tons, uh, and I use metric since uh, you're in the UK, um, we have 30 ton, 30 ton of propellant. So the main passenger of any rocket is the propellant. Uh, the payload, in our case, is less than 1% of the mass of the rocket. 
Um, in some of the best rocket in the world, it scale as it gets bigger, it, it can reach two, three percent max, um, and we just under and we are just under one percent. So what it means, you know, you have 30 ton of propellant. One percent of 30 ton is 300 kilos, and our payload is 300 kilogram. So what it means is that if you can build an engine that's one percent better than the your competitor, and that consume one percent less fuel for the same amount of thrust, you're going to fly twice the payload. You know, two percent, three times the payload, um, and you know that means twice the payload, means twice the revenue, and uh, twice the amount of payload you can se you can sell. And typically, performance you know come from design. So the the actual price uh, to build your rocket and the material and the manufacturing and the time and all the launch expense and and so on, propellant is a tiny obviously fraction of the of the cost, um, will be the same as your competitor. But because you spend more time focusing on, on propulsion and you spend more time focusing on performance and maybe delayed your roadmap to reach the performance you want uh, to reach, um, once you're in the market, uh, you're going to be very competitive, um, having a, a much lower cost per kilogram of payload than, uh, than everybody we've seen, um, you know, publicly everything they've announced in terms of you know, electric propulsion, which is a big compromise, or or MVP, even there's even some pressure-fed uh, stuff out there. Um, so that's our view. Our view is take a bit longer, focus on um, on propulsion and performance, and at the end, you know, the rocket we build, we'll have to operate it for at least 10 years, um, and uh, so so will our competitors. I don't think Rocket Lab is about to build, you know, brand new engines and replace that. I think they're very focused on, you know, getting to a flight cadence. Um, so you can pretty much expect that in five, ten years, you know, it's very likely that the, the engine, the architecture, and the performance uh, they have developed over the last five uh, will still be there. Um, so that, that's our view and our, and our key differentiator. Slower timeline, not first to market, uh, but coming out with the highest performance uh, launch vehicle. Yeah, I think that's actually yeah that's is a you know a key point. I mean, what I in in my research what I work on is light weighting of of structures, which obviously you know if you can make a rocket as light as possible, then you you have the same benefits that you just alluded to, in terms of uh, being able to put more payload onto your rocket. But in, and in fact, you know the rocket equation in terms of how much propellant that you need is actually an exponential equation. So if you can make if you can save one percent in terms of uh, of fuel. Then uh, you know you can actually, if you if you increase that even further, your benefits might even be exponential in a, in, yep. in a way. Uh, so um, yeah, so that that's, abs that's absolutely fascinating. So um, I've I've heard you say that you know you're kind of on this ten year uh, timeline of of developing a capability, and um, you've kind of you started with building um, the rocket engine. Now, based on what you've just said, um, is do you believe that, or did you start on uh, designing the rocket engine rather than the rocket structure around it, or maybe everything simultaneously because you believe that the rocket engine is the key thing to get right, or is it just the hardest thing to get right? Well, I mean, we think, you know, if you look visually at a rocket, it looks like 90% tank and, you know, 10% rocket engine. But from an engineering point of view and a product point of view, it's, uh, it's not quite the opposite, but it's pretty much the opposite. Um, so, you know, the, the way we started Launcher actually is a, a little different. So we started by, by the first assumption is we need to build a team and we need to fire rocket engine and we need to learn about 3D printing and we need to learn about test site, test and software to control valves and, and so on. 
So we, we designed E1, uh, which is a subscale, you know, relatively small 500 pound engine. It's quite uh, interesting to experience it, uh, even though it's small. Uh, it's about one kilogram a second of propellant. It uses uh, liquid oxygen and kerosene and is uh, pressure fed. Um, and the reason we first designed it is, is really to get moving. Uh, and within, um, you know, by December, so we started in March, by December, uh, we were successfully firing and had built our test site, test stand, and, and our team. Um, in that process with the team, we also hired our chief designer that we, we will announce in the future. We can't talk too much in detail, but it's very experienced. And we started to design E2, which is our, our flight engine. Um, E2 is 22,000 pounds, um, so it's about five times larger than a, a, a Rocket Lab Router Ford engine. Um, and it, uh, it's uh, mostly 3D printed, so we're making bets that we'll be able to build uh, probably the largest 3D printed engine uh, of its, uh, you know, uh, of its performance for sure. Uh, and we chose stage combustion, which is uh, the highest performance cycle. It was actually, you know, if you take a step back and look at rocket engine, uh, from a performance point of view, the best engines uh, were designed in the 70s and the 80s uh, in the Soviet bloc. Um, and uh, that's recognized worldwide. Uh, so the highest performance engine, you know, kind of it peaked at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, we have not really done better. So the key now is how do you take this, this technology uh, that the Soviet really perfected for LOX RP1 of stage combustion, which means you don't have any uh, waste from your turbo pump. You actually you know, insert the exhaust of your, of your pre-burner and your turbine into your combustion chamber. Um, how do we take that and make it cheaper using uh, new technologies such as 3D printing? Um, so that, that's the key um, you know, and, and really the opportunity here. Um, is to bring this technology that exists, we're not inventing new technology, and apply it to 3D printing uh, and end up, um, as we expect by the end of uh, 2020, with the highest performance, probably largest uh, 3D printed uh, engine um, of any kind. Uh, and, you know, because we leverage 3D printing, uh, the low cost comes with it, uh, as, you know, as part of it. Okay, so you've just mentioned some interesting technical points there. One is 3D printing, and the other one is about the different types of cycles. Let's delve a little bit deeper into the cycles first. So Rocket Lab announced that they're using an electric turbo pump, and you're, I think, currently using a pressure-fed cycle, um, but there's all sorts of other cycles. And could you, you know, explain some of the, the key differences between the different types of cycles and why you've chosen to, to, to go with the one, with the with the... Uh, open stage cycle in the end? Uh, stage combustion, which is closed, actually. Uh, yeah, and to rewind, you know, E1 is basically our development engine. It's 40 times smaller than our flight engine. As you mentioned, it's pressure-fed. And the reason it's there is to get going, but also it helps us basically confirm that we can handle the combustion condition of E2 and that our uh, region cooling channel and design in our 3D-printed chamber uh, function as we expect before we manufactured a much larger and more expensive uh, E2 combustion chamber. Uh, E2 will be stage combustion, which is a closed cycle, and it's recognized as the highest performance cycle. Um, if you take a step back and look at all the different cycles, so the, the most basic is pressure-fed. I believe only one um, launch vehicle ever, um, I think it's the French one, uh, reached orbit using uh, pressure-fed. Um, it's, uh, it's a challenge because of the tank mass, because of the pressure you need to hold in the tank, which is not generated by the pump. Um, and generally, uh, I think there is one startup, Vector, that is trying to attempt it now using carbon fiber, uh, but it's generally seen as the lowest performance. Um, 
After that, uh, you know, you now have electric cycle. Obviously, a lot of people talk that it's the future, electricity, it's very exciting. Um, but the reality is that uh, if it was the future, SpaceX will probably go in that direction and they are going down the stage combustion uh, direction. Uh, one of the big challenges with electric is that you're limited in the, in, the, in the combustion chamber pressure and the power you can generate using a reasonable amount of batteries. Um, and as you mentioned with the rocket equation and propellant, the big issue with batteries is that as you fly, uh, they are not getting lighter. Uh, mm -hmm. There are schemes to try to eject them. Uh, I think Rocket Lab did that for their stage two, whether they'll succeed with stage one. Um, but to date, you know, it's generally seen obviously a lot better than uh, pressure fed, uh, but the lowest performance um, uh, of the uh, turbo pump driven cycle. Um, then you have open cycle, which is, uh, you know, uh, much easier to develop that closed cycle or the, the family of closed cycle. What it means is you still use a gas generator, so you burn liquid oxygen and kerosene at a ratio where the temperature is uh, low enough so that the turbine wheel doesn't melt. Um, and then uh, you use like 3 to 4% of the propellant to uh, create this basically gas stream that goes through a turbine that actuates your 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 oxidizer and fuel uh, main pump for the chamber, and then with the exhaust, you just dump it over the side. Um, it's you know, relatively easier than stage combustion to develop because they're two kind of discrete system. It doesn't loop on itself. Um, but the main disadvantage is that you are dumping all of this propellant that is uh, at a low mix ratio. It's not been fully accelerated, and you didn't use the whole you know, propulsion potential of this uh, propellant from your tank uh, because of your turbo pump. Um, SpaceX, for example, with the Merlin engine, and most, most U.S. Um, you know, engine uh, use the open cycle. Um, and then you have closed cycle, um, and you know, there's, there's been an uh, example of closed cycle and stage combustion in the U.S., for example, the SSME, uh, which are you know, hydrogen, um, uh, oxygen engine. Um, but for, 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 for RP1, kerosene, and liquid oxygen, um, it's really been a specialty of the Soviet bloc. Uh, and it's something the U.S. is, is only starting to venture again, uh, you know, with the work of a few startups and also the work of Blue Origin and SpaceX with their new BE-4 and uh, Raptor engine. So the, the closed cycle or the stage combustion cycle, basically the principle is that you still have a, uh, a gas generator. It's called a pre-burner. Uh, you still uh, generate gases at a low mix ratio, low temperature. You still actuate uh, your, your turbine for your turbo pump. But instead of dumping it over the side, you bring it into the chamber and then you add more kerosene to bring it to the full combustion temperature. Uh, and, then, uh, and then you expel it out of the main nozzle. Um, now, some of the big challenge with this type of engine is that it, it, it kind of is a closed loop on itself. So it has a tendency to... Uh, uh, to not go well at start if you have issue. Uh, so it's expensive to, to develop if you don't have the, uh, the full experience. Now we can use simulation, so that's new, and that was not available uh, in the Soviet bloc in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when they developed it. Um, but the, and then the other, uh, one of the main advantages, you can have uh, high combustion chamber pressure. You know, our goal is 100 bar. Uh, but it's actually the biggest engine in the world, RD-170 from uh, NPO Energomash in Russia is, a, is, I think, more than 300 bar of uh, chamber pressure through the cycle. Um, but one of the difficulties is because the chamber pressure uh, is connected to the pre-burner, uh, you need very high uh, pressure in your pre-burner. In our case, about 300 bar of combustion 
chamber pressure in the pre-burner so that you can keep a back pressure and uh, if your combustion chamber is at 100 bar, uh, the hotter combustion from the combustion chamber doesn't make its way backward uh, to your turbine because everything is, is connected. It's not a pipe, but you know, from, a, from a concept point of view, you could think about, uh, about it as a connected pipe which starts with a, a low, low temperature combustion and then over the distance of the pipe uh, increase to the, to the full 2.6 mix ratio uh, potential. So, um, so that's the, the difficulty and you know, we've been building a team and obviously with the help of uh, some of 3D printing in terms of keeping the cost of stage combustion, um, that's our goal. E2 is a 22,000 pound, mostly 3D printed uh, LOX RP1 uh, stage combustion engine. All right, so you just mentioned that um, there are obviously some advantages that we have now in terms of simulation capabilities um, to be able to build. You know, a, a startup can now build something as, you know, as big a mission as you have um, with uh, a relatively small uh, design team, let's say, compared to what was, you know, going on in the 60s. So the question that I have is that, you know, when I see the videos on your website, which, you know, absolutely fascinating of you basically igniting a, a rocket engine in a shipping container in, uh, in Brooklyn, um, the first question that pops to mind is, how is this possible? You know, how can a couple of guys build a rocket engine like this and um, and basically, you know, make it work in a in, in a safe way. Is it just the simulation capability, or has the the three D printing is that also like a game changer in terms of being able to manufacture rocket engines? Yeah, I mean, I think to try to understand how hard it is um, compared to you know other discipline in the world, it, it's good to understand really the, the background of of rocketry. Um, you know. A lot of rocketry actually, um, you know, comes from you know the industrial revolution and the steam engine design, including the nozzle shape. Um, and you know, it all starts, you know, in the 20s. Uh, and and the first real practical uh, rocket engine um, basically was created by Van Braun and his team, um, unfortunately during World War II with the V2. And if you look at that engine, um, you know, it's basically. Uh, all of the principles of engines today are the same. You have a, a, a gas generator, a turbo pump, an oxidizer, a fuel, a combustion chamber. Um, and it's uh, n not very much has actually even changed from, uh, from what they built in the 40s, uh, mostly today in cost and then uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and so on, uh, has been you know, size and, and performance, um, you know, refining the cycle. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the discipline of building chemical rocket engine, which is really what we're building, um, is really well known by now. It's very well documented in education book. Also, thanks to Internet, there's a huge amount of white paper from around the world that are, uh, that are, that are available. Um, so the key, the key challenge really has been, you know, actually doing it, putting people, actually having a test site, uh, being focused, and then some of the big challenges have been um, have been uh, you know the, the 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 manufacturing of the combustion chamber. Um, even the V2 rocket had um, had uh, basically regenerative cooling, which are cooling channel in the nozzle, uh, which allow you to operate at a you know combustion temperature inside the chamber uh, quite often, which is uh, twice higher than the the melting point of the metal you use for your for your chamber. So, you know, the history, you know, back to the history, the performance was perfected in the, in the 80s, as I mentioned. Uh, at the end, we're building chemical rockets that have been around for, uh, you know, about 100 years. 
And um, and while you know, obviously, um, you know, building launch vehicle and rocket engine uh, is extremely hard and extremely uh, expensive. Uh, one of the things that we're lucky uh, in 2018 is that it's it's relatively easier every day. So what's easier for, for us, back to your question, first is the amount of knowledge that has been shared and we don't have to generate. You know, our, our predecessors, you know, had to invent everything, borrow from other industry. Uh, the first turbo pump was actually uh, uh, borrowed by uh, a design of a, a firefighting pump, for example. Um, and so we, we have all of this data, not all of it is available, but a lot of it is available and all of these design patterns, all this information is, is out there. I think that, that's one of the big drivers today and it's enabled by the internet uh, why, why many people around the world have, have access to this. Um, the second piece, obviously you need, you need control, uh, you need electronics, um, especially when you fly with guidance, but even today in our test stand we have uh, pretty advanced you know, uh, control and data recording and monitoring um, in order to operate our test stand and, and obviously today, you know, the software that are available, the tools to, to build electronics and software are, are much easier than even they were uh, 10 years ago. Um, and then you have the actual hardware, you know, our, E2, our E1 engine is just three parts uh, and it comes out, you know, very, very minimal machining out of the 3D printer. We use EOS uh, M290. Um, and it comes out in three parts, you know, we cut them off the plate, we, 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 we tap some threads and, and, it's, and we obviously clean it with our partner and it's, and it's ready to go. Now that's, that's a, an incredible breakthrough because before 3D printing was there, there were a lot of people doing uh, development rocket engine, um, but because of the challenge of building the nozzle, uh, the geometry of the nozzle and the cooling channel, they would typically build, you know, I call them a brick, you know, they, they would build a, a much simpler, uh, the, the, you know, the inside of the, of the engine would be the, the right shape, but the cooling scheme and the, and the outside would usually be a, a pretty simple water-cooled um, system that, that works great for a test stand to do some research, but uh, there is no, no way you can take that to flight. And then once you really are trying to build a, a nozzle for flight, you have to change completely your production process uh, with brazing of, of copper and inconel and, and all these very expensive and complicated, pro complicated process. So for us, you know, 3D printing is really an enabler because we are able to, um, to print a region called, high performance region called uh, chamber today at a small size, um, which, you know, uh, use all the same production technique and all the same uh, dimensions and, and weight uh, as our flight one will. Um, and that, that's, you know, I think without 3D printing, uh, I, I'm not sure we would, have, uh, we would have started on this endeavor with the resource we had to start, you know, meaning a few hundred thousand dollars as we started and, and a big ambition. Right, well, that's, that's fascinating. So as, as a material scientist, I'm, I'm quite interested in the, the, the cooling problem that you just mentioned. So I presume that you're using some form of high temperature metal for the nozzle, maybe, you know, maybe Inconel or something like that. And then uh, how does the cooling actually work? So are there cooling channels within the nozzle? And then what flows through those cooling channels? Is it the propellant or is it also some form of other coolant? So, uh, you, I mean, back to the 90% of the rocket is propellants. There's definitely no uh, mass budget to add water or some other liquid. Um, so, you know, again, back to the, to the 40s, um, uh, 
uh, most, uh, if not all, uh, rockets use the fuel as the cooling, and you basically uh, run the fuel through the nozzle, through all of the channels, uh, before inserting it into the injector. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, your fuel will be, unless like SpaceX, you subcool it. You know, for us, our fuel is at the ambient temperature, so uh, call it today in about 30 degrees Celsius in New York. Um, and, you know, you really don't want to get it to more than 200 degrees or so because at some point you'll reach the, the flash point or the coking point of, of your uh, kerosene. We use a special type of kerosene called RP1, uh, which is, you know, better in terms of uh, its usability for, um, for cooling, but you still have a limit. So a big part of the design is how to use that, you know, 30 degree to 200 degree budget um, insert the full flow of the kerosene into the, the, the exhaust of the nozzle. So we have a, uh, we have a, a manifold there with a, with a fitting uh, where we insert the flow there. And then it runs through 57 spiraling channel in our case uh, of about you know, a millimeter square diameter. It's variable, obviously, but that, that gives you an idea of the size, a little bit smaller around the throat. And then comes out of the uh, of another um, uh, manifold at the other side, so at the top where the injector is, and then gets injected um, slightly hotter, obviously closer in our case right now to 140 degrees Celsius into the chamber for combustion. So you know, literally you have it's you know for free you have this cooling. You don't have to carry additional. Uh, coolant, which anyway wouldn't be possible due to the you know limitation of uh, the the physics in this world and the rocket equation, and uh, and then um, you know you reinsert that thermal energy anyway in the chamber, so it you know it comes for free at, uh, to, to some extent. Right, and I guess without three D printing, it would probably be super difficult to manufacture those spiraling cooling chambers on the, within the nozzle. I presume. Yeah, and you were talking about material to answer your question. So today, you know, if you use DMLS, which you know gives you the greatest resolution in 3D printing, um, you're really limited to one metal. Um, and uh, and so traditional chamber actually usually use some sort of copper alloy inside for maximum conductivity, uh, and then uh, they use a jacket on the outer side, usually inconel for strength. You know your if you have a, uh, an engine with 100 bar of combustion pressure or more, you obviously need a, an amount of strength and you don't want to use copper uh, with its mass to, to create uh, that, that, that strength. So the traditional combustion chamber is you know, copper liner, it's called the liner inside, sometimes also with a spray, uh, some sort of thermal barrier coating inside, and then uh, the channels are in the copper and then there is a, an outer shell of, uh, of Inconel. Now, if you're machining this, um, you know, obviously CNC and computer control is helping, but the, the tolerance and the precision that you need to have your jacket match exactly your liner, and then the process to braze it together so that all of the channels, in our case, in our small engine, we have 57 channels. In a larger engine, you, you can have, you know, hundreds of them, uh, and they can be a few meters long, so uh, you, you can imagine the amount of uh, brazing that you have to get right. Uh, this has been traditionally one of the big challenges in the industry, the, the creation of this chamber, uh, the yield and the tooling expense. And with 3D printing, you, you just bypass all of that. Now, it comes with a few compromise. As I mentioned, one metal, uh, which is not you know, as ideal as copper. Uh, so that, you know, in theory, should reduce performance. Uh, but we're actually finding last week we reached the optimum mix ratio and nearly the highest combustion temperature 
um, of 2.6 mix ratio and uh, without any damage thanks to our cooling design uh, channel. So we have we have actually great hopes for uh, what we can do with an Inconel only chambers in terms of performance. Um, uh, and then the other constraint is size. And uh, we're actually working with our partner on, on what we hope will be the largest single part uh, 3D printed chamber um, by the mid next year. Um, but obviously 3D printer have a, have, a, have a size limitation. You know, the, the I would say the biggest that's widely commercially available is about uh, 40 cubic centimeter from EOS, the M400. Um, and if you want to build an engine, even a 5,000 pound engine like Rocket Lab, uh, you have to start thinking about flanges and or welding and that all of that reduced performance because you, you can't weld all these channels. You have to create manifolds to group them and, and slow the cooling, uh, the coolant, which means you probably should reduce your combustion temperature in that zone uh, and reduce as a result your, your performance. So a key part of our roadmap in focusing on performance is how do we print, um, you know, our chamber in one, in one shot uh, in Inconel at the size of 22,000 pounds. And we, you know, we can't talk about everything today here, but we've made a lot of progress and we think we'll have our hands on that by, uh, by next summer uh, on, on a path uh, like this. Right, great, that's great to hear. So I guess, so the E1, I've seen plenty of videos of the E1 and uh, it, it's quite a, you know, a compact engine. So in terms of the E2, um, I mean, what can you say perhaps in terms of how you're gonna develop from here? So what are your kind of plans for the next 12 months or 24 months going into the future? Well, right now we have two threads. So, you know, as I mentioned, we are every week, about every week, every two weeks, we're testing E1. And our goal with E1 is to reach the same combustion temperature and pressure as for E2. Uh, and what, what's great with uh, combustion is that it, it actually scales. Right? Once we can prove that our, that our channel design work at this 40 times smaller small scale uh, at 100 bar of pressure and 2.6 mix ratio, we have enough validation to, to expect it to work uh, at, the, at the larger uh, engine with the same channel design, just more of them uh, and, and larger. So one of the one of the projects we have is uh, is the design of our E2 combustion chamber, the manufacturing by uh, by next summer, and then the firing uh, of a pressure-fed version of E2 by the end of next year. Uh, at the same time, uh, we're also working with a range of partners. So we, we're doing this with an experienced partner uh, on our uh, liquid oxygen pump, and next year we will start more work on our fuel pump and turbine. Uh, in pre-burner, but right now we, we're very active in the development of our, of our liquid oxygen pump, which is one of the critical and most difficult element of the, of the turbo pump. And our plan is for um, our turbo pump with our chamber, so our full engine on the test stand uh, by the end of 2020. So um, turbo pump, another two years of work to, to get it completed and tested before we can uh, get, uh, get it attached to the engine. And then uh, full-size engine, pressure-fed, 20-second run at what we hope will be the highest performance for 3D printing um, uh, by the end of next year. Okay, great. Um, I mean, so so you're based in in Brooklyn, New York. How is it actually in terms of the kind of the economy, the space economy around New York? Do, do you find yourself having to, you know, maybe go down to Florida or California to work with all these partners? Or is, it, is there actually a good infrastructure in New York? I mean, the, you know, New York is amazing in terms of, uh, you know, recruitment, the amount of people that want to work here, um, and, and some of the, you know, funding and press infrastructure, much better than being in the desert. 
Um, and, uh, you know, some of the challenges, obviously, how do you get a test site in New York? And we, you know, a lot of people don't know, but New York is just next to Long Island. And uh, Long Island is, a, is a, an incredible uh, history of, uh, of aerospace, uh, mainly led by uh, Grumman, which, uh, which kind of reduced their operation here in the, in the uh, early 90s. But uh, the site where we test is, for example, where the F-14 have been uh, built that you see in Top Gun 1, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, also not so known, but the lamb that landed on the moon, the lunar lander uh, that landed on the moon in 1969 was also designed on Long Island. So there's a huge heritage, a lot of infrastructure, but obviously the industry is gone. Um, and that's why it makes it possible for us to have a, a rocket company in New York, because we're able to leverage this uh, airfield uh, to build uh, to build our test stand. Now, in terms of the rest of the industry, you know, for 3D printing, our partner is in California. And, uh, you know, we in the U.S., we have FedEx. Um, you know, the parts don't yet need, a, you know, specially designed planes or, or, or large, larger than normal trucks. Um, so it's actually very easy to work, you know, uh, with vendors and partners that are, you know, across the country. That's, you know, I, I don't see the difference between that and them being next door. All right. Well, so so finally, maybe just a, a a question for the far future. So, of course, you know, SpaceX's reusability has probably been you know one of the greatest advances in rocket technology of the last decades. Um, and I don't know, does would it make a difference in terms of launching smaller rockets? You know, does it scale to to that size, or is it mostly just important for for larger rockets that go into deep space? Yeah, I mean, if you think about Launcher first, you know, we have our 10-year mission that uh, there's 8.5 years left to build our high-performance uh, orbital launch vehicle. Obviously, we're building a long-term company, right? We, are, we hope to be part of the future of exploration, and uh, we hope that, you know, that our first mission in the next 10 years is not the last and will be around in 100 years. Um, so that's, you know, the, the, the first, the way we look at it. And if you look at it that way, you know, ultimately we, we big believe in reusability and I don't think we'll be around long term, uh, unless, uh, we have reusability, uh, built in. Um, one of the ways we deal with that first is to make choices, technical choice that never negate reusability. So we use liquid, uh, propulsion. Uh, one of the great advantage of liquid propulsion is that it's reusable. Uh, you might have limitation in seals. Uh, in bearings, uh, but ultimately, you know, compared to solid propulsion, one of the big advantages, you know, once you fully integrated your engine and, and your rocket, you can actually do a full mission cycle held down uh, as SpaceX does and test everything, and then obviously start it again for your for your actual uh, mission. Um, so our engine are reusable. Now the question is, will our first rocket re be reusable? I'm not sure, probably not. It's certainly not designed to be. And, and back to your question, there is a big challenge between reusability and small launcher. So if you look at Rocket Lab, um, you know, they've built an incredible launch vehicle uh, that obviously is, is very, very mass conscious. They've, um, they've pushed uh, what's been proven in the past in terms of, you know, no one has ever flown a carbon fiber tank with liquid oxygen and they've done it. Um, and, uh, and this is all about reducing mass so that they can have a 150 kilogram payload to lower orbit. Um, if you just imagine Rocket Lab adding legs to land, forget the extra propellant they need, forget the uh, reaction control system they need uh, to basically try to replicate what SpaceX is doing, just the legs will be more than 150 kilogram. Um, so you basically have a, a big conflict with, you know, a, a small launcher, um, you know, you, you the current approach of SpaceX is, is just not uh, feasible. 
Um, now, you know, there is a sweet spot, right? Our launcher is, is, is bigger than, uh, than, uh, than Rocket Lab. Uh, we'll also have only four engines in our stage one uh, instead of nine. So you can imagine maybe in the future we'll build a, a larger launcher or a medium-sized launcher using our same engine and, uh, and we'll start focusing and working on uh, trying reusability. Uh, we'll see. Uh, it's not the first step in our plan. We think the economics work uh, for small sat and small launcher uh, without it, uh, but it, it remains a long-term goal and, uh, and we're certainly not about to make any technical choice that, that will mean we can't access it uh, for larger uh, rockets. Yeah, uh, that actually just highlighted a key point of space, I guess. I'd never thought of just thinking about the kind of the platforms that, you know, come out to, to re-land a rocket that that would already add 150 kilograms. But I guess in space, every gram counts. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at SpaceX, the, you know, on an expendable Falcon 9, they can now uh, deliver 20, 20 tons to low Earth orbit. Um, and the reason they can, and, you, and you've seen that some of them, they launch them and expand them uh, either because they don't want to keep them or because uh, the mission requires all the fuel. But the only reason they can reuse it is just the, the sheer power and size of Falcon 9. When they have smaller payload, they can use the, the remaining budget uh, for the legs and for fuel and for the reaction control system. Um, that's ultimately, you know, and... You know, and it doesn't work if your if your payload is twenty ton. You can kind of see how it can work. If your payload is one fifty kilo, it just doesn't add up. Um, right. That, that's uh, that's yeah. That's as simple as that. Yeah. So coming from a you know originally a non aerospace related background, so ca can you recommend any resources? to listeners if they want to learn more about rocket engineering and, you know, keeping in mind that a lot of the, the listeners we have on this podcast are mechanical, electrical or aerospace engineers. But if anybody wants to delve deeper into, into the field, what are some of the resources that you would recommend? I mean, the, the starting engineering book is a RPE, Rocket Propulsion Element. Um, you know, there's many others, but it's a great starting book. Um, you know, also there is a, a, an interesting software we've kind of we're not using, for example, for a cooling channel or anything, but it's uh, it's it's been making uh, uh, you know playing around with some of the parameters of of designing engine and really understanding how they all fit together. Uh, it's called RPA, Rocket Propulsion Analysis, and there's a free version. Um, with these two, you know, if you have a mechanical engineering background, you you can really start scratching the surface and 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 think about uh, all the different scheme of uh, injector and engine cycle and and the basic design principles. Great. Well, thanks. I'll actually be checking those out as well. So, uh, just my final question: How can listeners keep up to date with uh, your developments? Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, things we're really proud of is to uh, share as much as we can. You know, there's obviously export regulations in the U.S., uh, but our goal is to is to share uh, as much of our success and failures. You know, we're probably one of the only companies that have uh, uh, shared some of the failures as well um, uh, with uh, uh, with our audience, uh, which are mostly our engineers interested in, in what we're doing. So the best way is to um, follow us on Instagram, which is at LauncherSpace, or Twitter, at LauncherSpace. You can also find a link from our website, uh, LauncherSpace.com. Um, you know, we're not right now growing the team, but we will very soon. So anyone uh, with either a, a great mechanical or electrical uh, background uh, or even a propulsion background, uh, if you're interested, you can email us at hi at launcherspace.com. We're always interested to uh, meet and talk to a potential uh, candidate. Um, 
And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll see us in the next year by, you know, you'll, you'll see us sharing many uh, subscale R&D development and, and test fire. And eventually by the end of next year, we'll see the 22,000 pound engine. Uh, uh, we hope we'll be able to share that with you all uh, being enlightened um, by the end of next year. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Max, uh, thanks for having the conversation. No, thanks for having me, Rainer. Great. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Launcher and the Rocket program, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family. Or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening, and talk to you next time.